Welcome to another edition of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. Today I'm speaking with Jason Wetzel, who is the co-author of Georgia POW Camps in World War II. Though World War II was fought in Europe and in the Pacific, many Georgians and other citizens across the United States saw the enemy, or who they think is the enemy, in their own town. While not an invading force, the World War II POW camps left a mark on those who were in them and witnessed them. In Georgia alone, more than 12,000 German and Italian soldiers occupied these camps in the Peach State. Jason has an MA in Education and History from Georgia State University and has a passion for World War II history. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's my pleasure, Johnny. Thank you. You know, a lot of people don't think about in terms of the home front in World War II. You think about manufacturing and things of that nature, letters written home, letters going to soldiers in the field. But you don't really think a lot about POW camps, and these prisoners have to have somewhere to go. What got you interested in researching? Well, actually, my co-author, Dr. (laughs) Catherine Coker, uh, Kathy and I used to work together when we were uh, working for the Department of the Army as civilians, as historians. And back in 1980, she actually interviewed a former German POW from Georgia. And uh, that was one of the people highlighted in the book, uh, uh, Radbert Kohlhouse. So she actually met him, talked to him, and did a first-person interview. Um, And she found out about the POWs when she was working at Augusta, Georgia, at Fort Gordon as a historian for the army. And so she wrote a paper on uh, POWs at Fort Gordon. This goes back to the 1980s. Well, fast forward almost 40 years and uh, she and I have been retired and she said, Hey, you know, I know that there were other POW camps in Georgia. You want to, do a little research on this and maybe write a paper on it. And that's how we did that. And then we eventually discovered it. The paper turned into a book, which Arcadia and History Press uh, were kind enough to uh, publish. And that's that's the story. How did the U.S. go about setting up these camps? What logistics-wise and how far before the U.S. entered the war did they start preparing these camps? They didn't start preparing these camps until early 1943, when the war was in full swing, and most, uh, just about all German prisoners and Italian prisoners, because remember, Italia, Italy at that time was part of the Axis powers and an ally of Germany, uh, were housed in England and Scotland and Ireland. And England at that time was suffering severe shortages because of the uh, uh, U-boat naval warfare and the fact that they were just running out of room and they had their plate full and England isn't that big to begin with. So England got a hold of the United States and Canada and said, hey, what about the U.S. and Canada start taking 
some of these POWs give us some relief because we've got enough shortages here as it is with men to look after them and food to give them. So in early 1943, the United States then started to to, uh, look into this uh, for German and Italian POWs. Um, It wasn't until mid-43 that we started to really take a look at the prisoners from North Africa because that's when the Africa Corps, which was a German elite fighting force of of over 200,000 soldiers, that combination of Italian and German, but mostly German, uh, were defeated by the U.S. and Great Britain in North Africa. So May, June, July of 43, the the Allies found that they had over 250,000 Axis prisoners, and now what to do with them? And then they, that's when they started shipping them uh, by uh, ship to the United States and to Canada. And that's when they started to arrive in Georgia uh, towards the, the uh, middle, say, around July and August of 43, uh, people from the Africa Corps. What port were they coming into? Were they coming into Savannah? Were they coming into a different port and being sent by rail car to Georgia? They they were coming into several different ports, depending on the convoys. Uh, they would they would they would arrive either in the bulk of them coming into New York City, Hampton Roads, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, and then and then some coming into Savannah and some coming into Jacksonville, Florida. The reason most of the convoys of prisoners wound up in New York uh, and um, uh, Virginia was because those were the closest uh, seaport embarkation places where the, for the convoys to come from England. Because going to Savannah, you increase the risk of, of U-boat attacks. Uh, that's, uh, U-boats were uh, German submarines. And uh, so that's why most of them came there. And then from there, the prisoners got into got into trains and were transported to different parts of the United States. And that's how we found that we wound up with them in Georgia. They they took a train trip from New York or or Hampton Roads, Virginia, and came on down to uh, to Georgia. How do they decide which prisoners got sent where? Was is it just this camp filled up, so we got to start filling up this camp, or is there a different? Well, it, it, it was a matter of what what camps were prepared at that time, what who who had the camps and where, uh, what, what buildings were up and running, uh, and then they wanted to, to to equally divide, try to is not overburden any one state, because remember there were forty eight states in the United States during the war. And all but uh, 40, 45 of the 48 states had POW camps. And they tried to, to, to divvy them up amongst the various states. There was no rhyme or reason. Uh, it was just a matter of numbers so that one state wouldn't get overburdened 
with a bunch of prisoners. And we wound up with, uh, in Georgia, with over 12,000 uh, prisoners. Wow. So what's the reaction like for the civilians seeing these soldiers coming in? And what's the reaction like on the flip side for the German and Italian soldiers coming into these camps? That's a very good question. The, uh, the civilians, and, and, and I got this from the research that we were doing at the Library of Congress and National Archives, and the uh, newspaper accounts from Georgia. I got a hold of every newspaper article I could find done in Georgia about the POWs. And initially, there were a lot of articles uh, and um, opinion pieces that, are you crazy bringing Nazi soldiers to prisoners to Georgia? All our, all our fighting men are overseas. There's nothing but women and children and old men here in Georgia, and they're going to escape from the prison camps and run rap- crazy, and they'll be looting and, and fighting. It's going to be horrible. So the initial reaction of Georgia citizens was one of disbelief and horror that this could happen because one of the one of the, one of the articles mentioned Nazis in our backyard. This is insane. And um, so there was a lot of fear, suspicion, and of course hatred because you know war unfortunately breeds misery and hatred for different sides. That was the initial reaction of Georgia uh, citizens. The reaction of Italian and German POWs coming to the United States, they they were they were they were befuddled. Uh, they were they had no idea what what to expect because just a few short weeks prior to them arriving in the United States. They were they were fighting um, U.S. soldiers in North Africa, and so now they surrender. Now they come over here, and all of a sudden, they're thinking this isn't too bad, because as soon as they got into the ports of embarkation, they were allowed to take showers. Cleaned up. They, most of, just about all of them, kept their, their original uniforms that they had when they were captured. Whatever they were wearing when they were captured, they kept wearing it, and even to the prison camps. And then they get to the different prison camps, and they find themselves getting three square meals a day, a place to stay. Nobody's shooting at them. No bombs are going off. It's sunshine. It's peace. They got radios with music playing. And all of a sudden they're thinking, whoa, this is a pretty good deal. We were, when we were at war, people were shooting at us. We had horrible food of what there was. Water was horrible. And we were living in a constant state of fear, anxiety. And now we're in Georgia, and uh, 
things totally different. There was one picture in the book of uh, an Italian soldier sitting at a table, prisoner, and he's got a little tear in his eye. The uh, U.S. Army photographer that took the picture back in 1943 said to him, why are you uh, getting teary-eyed? He, he said, look, look at this. This is the first time in five years I had an entire pork chop to myself. Wow. So that just gives you an idea of, of so some of their reactions. The, the question that, that you bring up also reminds me that as I read, as I did the research on this, this, this book is not, not about wars or battles or bullets or bombing. It's really about people, people to people who, when the uniforms are discarded and the, that what initially is met with suspicion, distrust, hate, eventually gave way to acceptance and understanding uh, of one group of people to another, from German prisoners, the people of Georgia started to look at them as people, because most of the prisoners, when you stop and think about it, were young men in their late teens and early 20s, as a majority of them. Of course, there were, as the war progressed, you had prisoners as young as 13 and as old as 70 that were coming over. But in the early years, 1943-44, most of the Germans were in their late teens and early 20s. And then the, uh, the Georgia people, as they got used to these prisoners being there and working on Georgia farms, they would eventually have little get-togethers at churches and allow the prisoners to come under guard, and they would actually have, in, in some respects, socials. And they got to know these people, not as soldiers, not as enemies, but as human beings uh, caught up in the, in the, in the, in the grind of war. And this was a very human story, a very, a story really of hope that even then back in the 1940s, we can learn a lesson that when you get away from the propaganda, the hype uh, of the newspapers and the press and the political machines and just look at one another as human beings on this planet, we can all get along. So there was a lot of lessons to be learned as far as acceptance and getting along, even from those war years of the 1940s. Yeah, I know some of these uh, POWs, they go and do work in the community, too. And even on, on farms, right? Oh, yeah. Um, there was a, a severe labor shortage in 1943 and 44 and 45 in Georgia. Well, actually throughout the country, but I'm just focusing on Georgia. The men were off the war. That left people behind that were children, women, Housewives, 
um, elderly people and some people that were just, you know, not physically able to go off to war. So what, what occurred was now Georgia farmers are experiencing crops rotting in the field. And they got together with the government, and the government had a program that said, look, we've got all these strong, able-bodied men just sitting in prison behind barbed wire doing nothing. We can offer them on a volunteer basis to come and work on Georgia farms and in lumber mills and in forestry to get paid to bring in the crops and do the work. And this is how Georgia farmers and manufacturers got a hold of these prisoners. They would bid on them through the government. The government would then pay them the astounding rate of 80 cents a day, which was equivalent to what an American private first-class soldier was making. So that came out to what, like $21 a month? But that, back then, that was, that was considered good money. And, they, and the prisoner, they would put this in the prisoner's account. This was all done under the guidance and, uh, and um, oversight of the American Red Cross through the Geneva Convention which dictated how prisoners would be treated. So on a volunteer basis, you as a, as a prisoner of war had the option of either just sitting there staring at the ceiling inside of barracks behind barbed wire or going out in the sunshine, fresh air, working on a farm and getting paid what an American uh, private soldier would, was getting paid. And... This was how they turned around and saved Georgia's uh, soybean crop, peanut crop, cotton crop, vegetables, trees that would have normally gone to waste, and uh, they were able to save this. There was an article, Johnny, in the uh, Dublin newspaper. I think it was the Making Telegraph published it. It was it occurred in Dublin in 1944 and the headline of the of the paper said africa core men save georgia's peanut crop oh wow yeah and it talked about how that the crops would have just rotted in the field if the if these guys hadn't stepped up because the you you're the under the jiva convention you were not in america you were not allowed to do forced labor was all volunteer, as opposed to what they did in Russia or Japan with prisoners. It was horrible. So that's uh, then eventually, as these as these uh, boys, you know, teenagers and early teens were working on the farms, they got to know the farmers, they got to know the farmers' families, and that's how a lot of personal relationships were formed in Georgia between Georgia citizens and the prisoners of war. We 
know, and you talk about it in the book too, that there is a re-education program as far as the way that we were perceived in the United States to the prisoners or the way they were taught about what they were taught about America in Germany or Italy. How much did going out into the community aid these re-education programs? Well, it, it really did because they were able to see. Remember, when the German soldier was in Germany, he was given a propaganda line that all Americans were evil capitalists, that American people hated Germans and Germans hated Americans. And you were given a one-sided view of America from the propaganda standpoint. It was a state-owned German radio and newspapers, so you only got one side. Well, when these guys got to the United States and started interacting with the people, they were getting American newspapers, American magazines, meeting Americans face-to-face, and they found out that it wasn't like what the propaganda was telling them back in Germany, that America looked like a pretty good place, and that democracy, which was uh, pretty much trashed by the totalitarian regime in Germany, hey, democracy, we don't know what democracy is. And the re-education programs started with, what is democracy? How does the American government work? How are the people represented through their representatives in Congress? What is it all about? What about American history? Let's talk about American history. Let's talk about why America is a good country. What about America is good? Why democracy works versus a dictatorship? And the education pro- re-education program was to uh, give these soldiers, prisoners, an idea of what it really was like versus what they were told in the propaganda back in Germany and Italy in the early part of the war. And uh, the what America was doing was preparing German citizens, the Soviet POWs, for return to, to Germany to say, okay, now the war is going to be over in another year or two. The United States, Britain, France will win the war. What's it going to be like in Germany when the war is over? And we wanted to send these prisoners back to Germany to instill the concepts of democracy in Germany. And many, many, many of these prisoners that did return to Germany um, uh, got jobs as civil servants, lawyers, judges, politicians, and that they instituted democracy in Germany to replace the old totalitarian system. And, and, and so from that standpoint, it was a minor success. But, you know, when you hear the word re-education program or the term, rather, it almost seems like it's another form of propaganda. But the difference here, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that they got to see that lesson in action by going out into the community. 
That's true. That's true. At first, and what you say is true, a lot of the, the soldiers said, this re-education stuff's a lot of hooey because it's just another form of American propaganda. Uh, this is American propaganda versus German propaganda, and they're just going to give us a lot of who struck John about what democracy is and what it's like in America. But the more they, they were involved in the classes and the more what they saw through independent magazines like Life Magazine, Look Magazine, Time Magazine, that were uncensored, the newspapers were uncensored, they were able to compare what they were reading and then, then they were seeing American films and then, and, and then American uh, uh, documentaries on what by, by filmmaker Frank Capra called Why We Fight. And then they were able to then to say, well, this isn't democracy. I mean, this isn't a lot of hooey. This is really what democracy is because we see it in the, in the news media that we're allowed to have in camp in our libraries. We see it on the films and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the movies that we're allowed to see. We hear it on the radio. We see it in person when we meet the people in town. And then the people in town are inviting us to, to churches, to socials, to get to know one another. And therefore, it's not propaganda. But it, it, took, them, it took them several months before they started to realize that, hey, this isn't just another propaganda campaign. This is this is the real thing, and it's uh, and, and it's exactly what they say it is. Yeah, that's, and so that's by their own personal experience and interaction with the community, plus all that other stuff I mentioned, was how they decided that it wasn't propaganda, but it was the real thing. But even though there still seem to be factions in the camps, as I was reading the book. And they were the diehard Nazis, if you will. How did? Oh yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those different factions, and also could they actually get word back to Germany regarding a fellow prisoner of war, um, to hire officials to cause harm to someone's family who is maybe coming around to the American way of life? Well, there, there's, there were always hardcore um, diehards. Uh, in, in any group, you know, the ones that say, nope, all this is a lot of bunk. This is still propaganda. We're hardcore Nazis. And there was there were hardcore Nazis. There weren't. I, I'd say they were less than five percent in my in my estimation of the prison population. But they they held sway over that. And remember, back in 1943 and 44, the German prisoners really didn't know if the war, if they were going to win or lose the war. So it was still a question. It wasn't until like late 44, early 45, did the prisoners get, get the idea that the war was going to be lost. So therefore they, these, these hardcore people eventually were weeded out and sent to like their own separate POW camp, like in Nebraska or someplace like that, to segregate them from the not hardcore prisoners to keep the intimidation down. And the prisoners back in 43 and 44, 
if, if, if a hardcore guy said, listen, if you don't, if you, if you try to cozy up to the Americans and, and you want to be, you know, really learn democracy and stuff like this and turn your back on the Fuhrer and uh, turn your back on Nazi Germany, we're going to get word through coded messages by the letters that we send back to Germany that that you're a bad person and that your family is going to be uh, injured or hauled off to prison because you're not towing the line. Well, the prisoners had no way of knowing if this was true or not. So they, you know, a lot of them were very, very frightened that there was going to be retribution. I did not run into any case where there was there may have been, but I didn't in my research find it. But the intimidation factor was a lot, was very important uh, until they could, after about a year, weed out all the hardcore people and send them to a different uh, location. And we know so that propaganda worked in their home country, though, that same way. I mean, there was, were there not Nazi soldiers that went into the fight because they were basically coerced to or forced to? Oh yeah, there was there 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 basically if uh, you were a cog in the wheel of the state in any totalitarian regime, and if they said you will enlist and you will fight, um, you did it. Otherwise, you're going to wind up in prison here in Germany, and we're going to we're going to take it out on you, and we're going to take it out on your family. So in a totalitarian state, you did what the state told you to do without question. You just saluted smartly and charged uphill. And that's frightening. You didn't have, huh? That is frightening. Very frightening. Oh yeah, that's the that's the frightening part of totalitarian systems, and um, and, and in a totalitarian system, at that case, it was like it was like that in Japan. It was like that in Germany, it was like that in Italy, and believe it or not, it was like that in the Soviet Union under Stalin. So anytime you got a dictatorship and you got somebody that's calling the shots and they got the power of the state behind them, you do what the state wants you to do or you're going to pay the consequences. I imagine some of these soldiers wanted to stay in the United States as the war was winding down and the repatriation began. Did any of the soldiers express that interest, and did any get to stay in the United States? All by all means, there there were a great many of them who decided, hey, man, from what we see, we've been here for two, three years. We've seen it on American newspapers, movies, our interaction with the community. This is a pretty good country. I want to stay here. I don't want to go back to Germany or Italy. But the Geneva Convention stipulated that at the end of the war, prisoners of war must be repatriated to their home country. End of story. You didn't have a choice. So many, many, many prisoners here that wanted to stay in the United States did not have a choice under the Geneva Convention. The end of the war, and we're talking about as late as 1946 and into early 1947, because it took that long for every all of them to eventually get back because of the, the chaos at the end of World War II and the 
shortage of ships to bring our men back from overseas and to send prisoners from here back to Europe. So they got put on ships in 1946, boom, sent back to, sent back to Europe. And then in the, and then many, there are many, many instances in the late 1940s and early 1950s where these former prisoners of war uh, immigrated to the United States and Canada um, and uh, settled here and, and uh, became American citizens and Canadian citizens. There was one instance I remember reading about where one German prisoner was put on a ship in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Ship went from Virginia to Europe, docked in France. All the prisoners got out in France. This is like 1946 now, after almost a year and a half after the war was over. He gets them, they get to put them on a train to send them from France to Germany. He jumps the train, hightails it back to the French uh, port, sneaks on a freighter, stows away on a freighter heading back to the United States. It gets to Hampton Roads, Virginia. He gets off and is eventually somehow identified, gets arrested. They put him on the next ship and send him back to Europe. So that's just a, I, th- I thought was an interesting story. It is. I, I hope, I don't know if you know any more of his story or not, if he actually ever got to come back and be an American citizen. No, I don't. I just remember reading that in, the news, in one of the newspapers at the time. But there were a lot of instances where uh, German POWs who met American um, girls, and I say girls because they were in their late teens, early 20s, American young ladies, at various socials during the war, fell in love with them, came back and married them in the late 40s, early 50s. Wow. And see, that's why I like this book, because it shows us this whole different side to the war that we don't hear a lot. Uh, we oh, yeah. yeah. It's, there's it's a, bit, there's never, a bit of kindness about it. There's in a, in a war that has so many horrible things happening. Uh, I don't want to say a silver lining, but there is kindness that comes through in the book. Oh, yeah. That's that's the message of, of, of hope that I found. Uh, through this, because I, I, I didn't know what to expect when I was researching this. I had no idea what to expect. And I was really surprised at that uh, message of hope uh, on a, when people got to know one another as people. Well, it, it, Johnny, there's an interesting story from a prisoner of war camp in Mississippi where the prisoner of war camp was here and there was an American factory of some kind right next to the prisoner of war camp. You had the barbed wire separated the prisoner of war camp from the American factory grounds. And there was a big to do because the American women who were working in the factory found a way to break through the barbed wire and go in there and party with the German and Italian prisoners. And when this was found out, there was a big hoorah about it. And they, you know, told these ladies, you can't do this anymore, and they reinforce the barbed wire. <laughs> it goes under, <laughs> so if there's a will, there's of, a way. 
Yeah, when when you when you're in your when you're when you're a teenager or in your early twenties, and all the young men are gone, and then you're looking across the barbed wire, and here's a bunch of other teenagers and young men in their early twenties who are healthy, available, and virile. Human nature being what it is, that's what happened. <laughs> I thought that would make a great movie. <laughs> it would make a great movie, and we've seen that in movies on the flip side of that where our soldiers are overseas and they fall in love with a woman oh yeah that's exactly that's exactly what happened a lot of american soldiers met uh, german girls during the war german young ladies wound up coming back getting married and uh and then uh, settling in the united states well, that's just incredible. Jason, I really appreciate you joining me today. I'm sorry Kathy couldn't join us, the co-author on the book, um, but the book is is just incredible. Uh, a lot of people are interested in it, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Johnny, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir, and we'll talk to you soon. I want to thank you as well for joining us on this edition of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. We are proud champions for the preservation of local history.